There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10th and Grant, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. And, you know, folks, we've been bringing in the last uh, two months, there's too many of these active shooter incidents. Three major active shooter incidents, Buffalo, Vivalde in Texas, and, of course, this one in Highland Park, Illinois, near Chicago. Uh, as the investigation unfolds, we learn more and more every day. And it always impacts upon the same things we've been hearing over and over again. High-powered rifles. The media refers to them as assault weapons. Background checks, red flag laws. Mental illness is a big thing. Um, we're finding out a lot as this investigation goes forward. We're finding out more and more each day and more and more about the perpetrator and, and what he is about. Uh, what we know about the shooting, prosecutors lodged first degree murder charges on Tuesday against a suspect who was taken into the custody on Monday evening. A gunman shooting from a rooftop killed seven people and wounded dozens more during a 4th of July celebration in Highland Park, Illinois on Monday morning. A 21-year-old man who was taken into custody Monday evening after an extensive manhunt was charged on Tuesday with seven counts of first-degree murder. The suspect faces life in prison without parole if convicted. Robert E. Crimo III, 21 years old, a man the authorities had initially said was a person of interest, was charged in the case on Tuesday. He was arrested on Monday night by police in a nearby suburb. The Lake County State's Attorney Eric F. Reinhardt said conviction on the first-degree murder counts would lead to a mandatory prison sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Mr. Reinhardt said on Tuesday that many more state charges are likely to be brought in connection with other people who were harmed in the attack. Right now, they just upped the um, number of deceased in this incident from six to seven. Uh, the coroner said the seventh victim died at a hospital. More than 30 people were injured, ranging in age from 8 to 85. A high-powered rifle was used. Deputy Chief Christopher Covelli of the Lake County Sheriff's Office said the high-powered rifle used in the shooting appeared to have been purchased legally by Mr. Cremo in the Chicago area, and that Mr. Cremo, Cremo had legally purchased a total of five guns including the rifle. Chief Cabelli said the suspect bought his firearms before he turned 21 years old. Everyone wants to always know in these instances motive, and right now the motive is unclear. Chief Cabelli said Mr. Crimo planned the shooting for several weeks, but the authorities had not yet established a motive. We have no information to suggest at this point it was racially motivated, motivated by religion or any other protected status, the chief said, adding that there was no indication that anyone else was involved. 
We also heard uh, that the gunman used a disguise to get away. He dressed up as a woman. Um, the attack was one of a number of shootings in recent days. These active shootings, as they be, have become to be called, are a horror for this country. And it's something that doesn't seem to be going away. In fact, it's increasing in regularity. And I think everyone on both sides of the aisle, Republican, Democrat, are looking for solutions to this. As part of this investigation, of course, they go back and they said, oh, could we have prevented this? That's always the question asked. Could we have prevented this? And, and, and on at least two occasions, the police had an occasion to have contact with Mr. Crimo. Once, he was threatening suicide, and the police responded, and mental health folks handled the situation. Another time, he was threatening his other family members with at least 12 or 15 knives, including daggers, and that type of thing. And the police also intervened in that, and that was referred to the proper authorities. Now, can the police, or will the police be criticized with how they handle these things? Of course, they will always be. That's just the nature of the business. However, I think the chief who covered this was confident that they had handled it correctly and um, did the right thing. This is a little video on some of the warning signs, the potential warning signs that the police may have encountered that may have um, mitigated this situation to ever have occurred. Some of the warning signs that appear to have been missed ahead of the tragic shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, which killed seven people and injured more than 30. 21-year-old Robert Cremo III has been charged in connection with the shooting. Cremo is suspected to have used a rifle similar to an AR-15 to carry out the attack. Authorities say he purchased the weapon in Illinois legally. A Highland Park police spokesperson said Cremo has been cooperative as law enforcement searches for answers in this senseless attack. Now authorities released the names of those who died in the shooting. They are 64-year-old Catherine Goldstein, 35-year-old Irina McCarthy, 37-year-old Kevin McCarthy, 63-year-old Jacqueline Sundheim, 88-year-old Stephen Strauss, all residents of Highland Park, and a six-victim, 78-year-old Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza of Mexico. There's also a seventh victim who is yet to be identified. At a news conference earlier today, Lake County State's attorney, Eric Reinhardt, announced first-degree murder charges against Cremo. Today, the Lake County State's Attorney's Office has charged Robert Cremo III with seven counts of first-degree murder for the killing spree that he has unleashed against our community. These are just the first of many charges that will be filed against Mr. Cremo. I want to emphasize that. There will be more charges. We anticipate dozens of more charges centering around each of the victims, psychological victims, physical victims, attempt murder charges, aggravated discharge charges, aggravated battery charges. There will be dozens of more charges against Mr. Cremo. But these seven counts of first degree murder will lead to a mandatory life sentence should he be convicted without the possibility of parole. Lake County Police Department spokesperson Chris Cavelli explained how Cremo allegedly plotted the shooting, including how he fled the scene by dressing as a woman. We do believe Cremo pre-planned this attack 
for several weeks. Uh, he brought a high-powered rifle to this parade. He accessed the roof of a business via a fire escape ladder and began opening fire on the innocent Independence Day celebration goers. The rifle was purchased in Illinois, and the information we have thus far is that it appears to have been purchased legally by Cremo. Uh, during the attack, Cremo was dressed in woman's clothing, and investigators do believe he did this to conceal his facial tattoos and his identity and help him during the escape uh, with the other people who were fleeing the chaos. And those are just some of the shocking details. We're learning tonight that the warning signs were piling up ahead of the attack. News Nation senior national correspondent Brian Enton joins us with the latest. Brian, it's good to see you. Now, I understand you're getting exclusive new details on who the shooter is and these apparent red flags that were missed, right? Yeah, Jesse, and it's disturbing. Uh, as the day has gone on, we've learned more and more, and it does appear there were red flags. Uh, tonight, Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, she was here promising uh, the full backing of the federal government to the community. You can see there's a crowd behind me. Uh, a, uh, a candlelight vigil for the victims just wrapped up. But the red flags are on the minds of the people here, and they are frustrated. Uh, we learned from police today that in 2019, they were called to the gunman's home two times. The first time uh, was when he attempted suicide, they say. The second time, which is perhaps more disturbing, Jesse, uh, is they say a family member called police and said that the gunman, quote, said that he wanted to kill everyone and that he had an extensive knife collection that he planned to use. Those two things alone have people here asking, how was he still able to get so many guns? We've learned, according to police, that he bought at least five guns in the last year alone, uh, two rifles, uh, a shotgun, and several pistols. Uh, people here uh, are, are questioning, why did the red flag law that's in place in this community not kick in? Uh, they're demanding answers, Jesse. You know, folks, that is quite interesting in the fact that here's a guy that has a psychological history. He has a psychological history where he threatens to commit suicide. That should be documented. The police, of course, documented it. They responded to the scene. Mental health workers handled that situation. Did they bring him to a mental health facility? Did he spend some time in a mental health hospital? Part two, he threatens to kill all the members of his family with knives. Of course, there was a criminal complaint against that. My question is, how was he able, after that was on his record, after the mental health incident where he uh, threatened suicide, how was he still able to buy guns? Very, very strange. Very strange how, how, that's, how that's a possibility. I just doesn't make any sense. Unbelievable. Disturbing indeed. Brian Enton, thank you so much. Great reporting as always. You know, all this information about the warning signs poses a difficult quandary for the media. Just how much attention should we be giving the alleged shooter? It's obviously very important to learn his backstory. The information the media and authorities are gathering right now can hopefully one day prevent a similar attack down the road. Yet at the same time, this type of coverage also gives the alleged shooter that exposure that these attackers so often desperately crave. Does all this focus on Robert Cremo increase the chances for a copycat or somehow encourage others who might be plotting these types of attacks? 
you know what? It's a tough question, and it's one that I'm not really sure has a clear answer. But I would like to get some perspective on that from someone in law enforcement. Joining us now is Mike Verdon, founder and CEO of the Lake Forest Group, a strategic security consulting firm. He's also a former Secret Service agent, police officer, and senior director of security for the NBA. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to join us tonight. Good evening. So let's start from right there. You know, from a law enforcement perspective, where do you come down on that? How much should the media be reporting on the shooter? You know, on one hand, again, there's valuable information to be obtained about his past, how this happened. But at the same point, are we amplifying his name too much? Is there a danger there? Well, every case you have to treat individually. So let's look at what happened yesterday. Uh, He was at large for eight hours. And they connected him. They recovered uh, the assault rifle from the rooftop. They ran the serial number. And they connected the dots back to him. So now they have his name. Once they have his name, they, they do the search warrant on the home. Um, but he was still at large. I think law enforcement did the right thing, working with media and putting out a photograph of him, putting out his name, putting out a description of the car and putting out the license plate, which eventually led to his arrest. And, and you know what? I'm glad you mentioned the exposure there, because this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the warning signs with you. So YouTube and Spotify removed content that was linked to Robert Cremo. Now, the companies haven't said when they removed the content, and they didn't say whether it had been flagged prior to the attack. So should something have been done here by them? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, what you see with these types of tragedies, Uvalde, you know, Parkland, Florida, um, You know, folks, uh, I'm just going to interrupt for one second. One of the things that's amazing is that you see these active shooters and some of them have active websites. They're active on YouTube. They're active on Facebook and they never get removed. I'll put one thing up that uh, Facebook doesn't like and I'm putting a penalty box for 29 days and not even anything that is, you know, against their... I put up a um, a video of an active shooter, and they put me in the penalty box for 29 days. How does this guy, who's advocating violence, how does Facebook and YouTube not take him off the site? I'm just, I'm baffled by it. I really am. If anyone can help me with that, I'd love to know. Andy Hook, there are signs that precede the incident, and it's already come to light that this was a pre-planned attack. He had planned this for a long time. It, um, in sync with that is the fact that he was he had the videos out there, social media posts, and as previously reported, the police had been to his house on a number of occasions. So the signs are there. Back to like you know big tech and Facebook things like that. They they need to really be uh, coordinated with law enforcement. If they flag something, they should notify law enforcement and, and, and vice versa. Law enforcement needs to proactively monitor social media. You know, something I spoke about this yesterday, law enforcement needs to be patrolling the halls of Facebook and the halls of YouTube, the halls of Twitter, the halls of Instagram. And those companies need to pay law enforcement to do that. How else are they going to do a a diligent job, a good job? Because you cannot let these uh, social media companies police themselves because they don't do a very good job of it. Absolutely, especially with what he was posting was pretty vile and grotesque and disturbing. But I have to talk to you about the prior incidents that involved law enforcement because they were called 
in the past. They were called about Cremo attempting suicide. And then a family member reported that Cremo threatened to kill his family members and they removed 16, nine, 16 knives from his home that would seem to be you know, enormous red flags. And I want to actually put this up on the screen here about how he was actually able to get the weapon because this is a response from the Illinois State Police. They said in September 2019, ISP, the Illinois State Police, received a clear and present danger report on the subject from the Highland Park Police Department. The report was related to threats the subject made against his family. Now, there were no arrests made in the September 2019 incident, and no one, including family, was willing to move forward on a complaint, nor did they subsequently provide information on threats or mental health that would have allowed law enforcement to take additional action. Additionally, no firearms restraining order was filed, nor any order of protection. Then you fast forward in December of 2019, at the age of 19, the individual applied for a FOID card, a uh, firearms uh, identification card. The subject was under 21, and the application was sponsored by the subject's father. Therefore, at the time of FOID application review in January of 2020, there was insufficient basis to establish a clear and present danger and deny the FOID application. That makes sense on paper, but in reality, how did this happen? Yeah, that's going to be, that's part of the investigation, right? They're really going to drill down on how this could occur. I have a little bit of insight there. So and I, I, I'm a resident of Illinois. I have a Freud. I have a concealed carry. And, and to acquire those licenses, you have to go through a background check. But what the general public doesn't realize, uh, if someone's arrested, an arrest does not show up in a background check. You have to have a conviction. So if, you know, as you had, had mentioned, like there is no uh, protective order, it looks like they seized the weapons, you know, the, the knives, the sword, the dagger. Um, and then also on this last search warrant, they took away five firearms. Um, we, I need to know, like, was he arrested for any of this or was, was it just like an asset forfeiture type thing where they take, take it away from the guy? Right. Because if he doesn't have an arrest, I'm sorry, a conviction record, then it's not going to be flagged in the yeah. background check. And then he, he's going to pass it and get his FOID license. So, uh, Mike, before I sign you off real quick, 20 seconds, it, it seems the police response here was much more positive than it was in Uvalde, right? I mean, they caught this guy pretty quickly. Yeah, fortunately, the police were on site because of the parade. They responded immediately to shots fired. By the time they got to where the active shooter was located, he was done shooting and he was already trying to escape. Well, it's good that they caught him when they did. It's just a tragedy that we're all trying to make sense of as new details come about. Mike Verdon, thank you. So, folks, you know, a lot of investigation. We're finding a lot more things. That's a little bit strange that um, an arrest will not show up just a conviction. I think I will submit to you and to everyone else that perhaps the arrest should show up. Since many arrests are disposed of with really no prosecution, as we know now. Uh, you practically have to kill somebody for the district attorneys to prosecute. How are you going to get a conviction if none of these district attorneys prosecute? So I am saying that perhaps as part of these red flag laws that they list arrests, not just convictions. I mean, I think I, I find this to be, to be outrageous, you know, to be outrageous. Uh, just, just totally, totally crazy that, uh, that they can't uh, list arrests. That should be a red flag folks. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like this podcast, please 
go on our uh, YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell. Uh, give us the thumbs up. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. That's three. And if you want to join our YouTube family, uh, we have five different levels of that. That's one way you can support us financially on our YouTube. I'm going to show a little bit of uh, the, the perpetrator being uh, arrested. He was uh, apprehended in his mother's car. I mean, you wonder in these instances, how much does the family know about this guy? I mean, they're living with this guy who's pretty much nuts and, and nothing's occurring to them as uh, maybe they should intervene. Charges shortly, but first, our Kelsey Kernstein has more on these seven victims now. Kelsey, what can you tell us? Mitch, we are learning that shooter, he shot 70 rounds of gunfire. Seven are dead, like you said, and the number of injured, that number now more than 45. The community grieving the losses. A community shattered and coming together to grieve another mass shooting in America. Overnight, residents of affluent Highland Park gathered to remember the victims of Monday's 4th of July shooting. Just hours earlier, a seventh victim died of their injuries, but their identity has not yet been released. This morning, we're also learning new information on the six other victims who died while celebrating America's independence. 78-year-old Nicholas Torlito was a Mexican citizen visiting family in town. Other residents of Highland Park, like 64-year-old Catherine Goldstein and 88-year-old Stephen Strauss. Jackie Sunheim was a well-known staffer at a nearby synagogue where she was a lifelong member. The Lake County State's attorney remembered the lives cut short. All of the people who died, steps from here, lost their freedom. All of it. Every ounce of freedom that they had. The freedom to love. The freedom to learn and the freedom to live a full life. Their freedom matters too. Kevin and Irina McCarthy were also killed at the scene, leaving their two-year-old son Aiden to wander alone during the chaos. The little boy was not harmed. In fact, a family member tells the Chicago Sun-Times, Kevin died protecting his son, saying, quote, he had Aiden under his body when he was shot. A GoFundMe page has raised more than $1.8 million in just 13 hours. More than 34,000 people donating money to help the boy on what the organizer calls an unexpected journey, including Vice President Kamala Harris and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff, who made an unscheduled stop in Highland Park on Tuesday, meeting with law enforcement and local politicians who are also grieving. From President Joe Biden and from our country, so sorry for what y'all have experienced. This should never have happened. We talk about it being senseless. It is senseless. It is absolutely senseless. And we do know that nine others remain in the hospital this morning. Those ranges of age between 14 and 17. One family, three people were injured, worried their son may succumb to his injuries. We begin. This is crazy, guys, that, you know, that that many people in one incident could be uh, could be wounded. It's just, it's uh, not just wounded, but in addition, seven people dead and over 30, over 30 wounded. Just, uh, just, just unbelievable. I, I don't think we can really fathom that. Uh, I, w I was trying to look for um, the, uh, Ashley Banfield has a psychiatrist on, uh, that talks about the proliferation of these young shooters. Um, for example, like, like this one.
that uh, that that just go out there between the ages of 18 and 21 that that commit these heinous heinous active shooting incidents, and to try to explain it is just uh, it's 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 inexplicable. It's inexplicable, and um, it, it's it's just too hard to explain. Uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, what, what is the reason for it? Is it social media? What, what is this hatred, this level of hatred come from? You know, very difficult to, to, to ascertain that. This level of hatred that allows for this young kid, this, 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 this young punk, really, this young rapper, to go get a gun, a, a semi-automatic weapon, and go out there and just snuff out the lives of people. It, it just it just does not make any sense. And it's not that it's an, an isolated incident. It's an incident that's been occurring way too Latest often. on the Highland Park Parade shooting investigation. Suspect will now face seven counts of first-degree murder. He's expected to appear in court in Lake County tomorrow. Authorities say he planned the attack in advance. Suspect was on the run for hours yesterday, finally taken into custody in Lake Forest thanks to a tipster who spotted his car. And now WGN's Kelly Davis is live in Highland Park with the very latest tonight. Kelly? Good evening, Ray and Micah. The Lake County State's Attorney called this shooting a calculated, premeditated attack on this small, tight-knit community. He says the seven counts of first-degree murder are just the beginning. They're the first of dozens of charges we could see in the coming days and weeks ahead. As they work to piece their investigation together, he said more will be coming down the pipeline, and many of those additional charges will focus on the direct impact the shooting had on the victims. As we go forward in the courtroom and in the community, we must do everything we can to make sure the horror that marked these streets, that echoed from these buildings, never happens again. Today, the Lake County State's Attorney charged Robert Cremo III with seven counts of first-degree murder. Today, the Lake County State's Attorney's Office has charged Robert Cremo III with seven counts of first-degree murder. For the killing spree that he has unleashed against our community. A large crowd gathered at the site of the shooting in Highland Park for the announcement. 36 hours earlier, a much different scene. A gunman fired more than 70 rounds into a crowd at the 4th of July parade. You know, folks, it's just heartbreaking when they go back to the scene. And you see all the chairs that are left there, all the toys, the kids' toys left there. It's just, uh, it's just horrendous, you know, just horrendous. Uh, like, what spurs someone on to do that? What craziness? What hatred? What you know? This guy's planning it. He's talking about it. Uh, he's talking about it on social media, and. How do, again, we talked about it before. How do these social media companies not pick up on this? How was he able to post his intentions and no one took his site down or reported it to the authorities? I tell you guys that are listening how easy it is to be removed from Facebook or Twitter or YouTube for that matter. But here's a guy, you know, putting all this violent content on and for some reason it just never gets any traction. I just cannot understand that. 
Ashley Benfield had a psychiatrist on that talks about this phenomenon. I'm going to play a little bit of that right now, and we'll see what he has to say about this. On this story, this time I'm going to tell it with Dr. Michael Wellner. He is a forensic psychiatrist who's worked on many of America's most notorious cases. He's interviewed surviving mass killers. Dr. Wellner, uh, when I saw this guy's face pop up on the news today, I think my first reaction was, oh, he looks a lot like all the others. And there's the story today for me. It, it, they don't necessarily look like the boogeyman anymore. They kind of just look like every guy. And honestly, doctor, I could tell you a million stories of people who have dark music and dark social media, but they're not mass shooters. So what are we to do? Well, you've, you've thrown out a lot of questions in your introduction in your earlier segment. So let's tackle them uh, piece by piece. There's there's no look for a mass shooter that would be different from any other person who chooses to commit murder, but there is a pathway that distinguishes them. And knowing the pathway and understanding them, if, if you're watching this and you have concerns about someone, small or large, then it would give you at least some reason of whether you should be more concerned. And the most important thing is it starts with someone who uh, doesn't. Uh, that video you see him in in that classroom, that was posted on on his uh, social media. How does he get away with that? How did someone not remove that? I'm I'm baffled by that. Develop resilience and blames others, but at some point. Um, along the way, in an early stage, identifies with destructiveness for destructive sake. That's the first the, the first stage. It graduates into identifying with destructive icons. And yet, for that smaller subset of people who might be posting content about previous mass shooters um, that that they may admire, there there's still a, a, a space. There's still a gap from from that. Point to someone who actually will go out and, and take this on. And, and the necessary ingredients are someone who is not only alienated, but becomes invested, invested in, in being alienated. So that person becomes not only isolated, but so much harder to reach. And at some point, because one is alienated uh, enough and, and someone is removed enough from the mainstream uh, that person, not only hard to reach, but that person becomes uh, failing. That, that person begins to fail um, in various aspects of one's life, socially, vocationally, academically. And the most important is sexually. In my experience, none of these individuals have developed healthy interpersonal sexual lives. And I would add, I have never encountered one of these individuals who is a long-identified homosexual. I'm saying that this is necessarily something that relates to heterosexual orientation. But what I am saying is that for those who fail intimately, that they identify their masculinity with destructiveness. And even then, those aren't the people who become mass shooters. The people who do are people who, who reach a threshold of hopelessness that they come to believe at some key point in their identity, that it's never going to get better for them. Mm. And they're so identified with the destructive that they embark on a path of saying, hey, 
this is something that I identify with enough that it's going to be my identity. And I'm going to be someone who becomes larger than life, just like all of these other people that we've turned into celebrities, which is why it is a distinctively American phenomenon. Yes, it occurs in other places, but it is most decidedly an American export. So it's a convergence of that's a cultural sad. phenomenon with, with, a, with, with something that's male, because there, are, there is no such thing as a female icon of destructiveness. And you, you know, it's interesting, you started your segment with movies like Ferris Bueller. The movies that are relevant are the indulgently destructive and violent movies that we marinate our developing children with. I wouldn't put my children in front of a violent movie. I wouldn't, I, you know, if they're going to watch what they're going to watch with their friends, it is what it is. But, but for everybody who preaches to us from Hollywood about guns and everything else, they themselves will pick up guns. They themselves will make money off the violence industry. And no, the overwhelming majority of people who indulge in all of that entertainment media are not going to become mass shooters, but the mass shooters pick up on the iconography of it and it feeds into it. So there's a cultural contribution. Absolutely. That's what happens now. You know, that men weren't just invented, but mass shooting has absolutely been something that, that's tracked more recent decades. So we have to recognize that this isn't so that while it's something that relates to men, there is a cultural component, there's an American component, and that the solution um, requires many different aspects of society if we want to get there. I'm telling you this optimistically. We can solve it, but people don't want to take responsibility for what, what they can do at their end. And by the way, I'm not making excuses for the perpetrators, just saying that there's a reason that folks are copycatting others. He copycatted others. He saw the, the, the idealized notion of a destructive individual, and he saw how we treat Uvalde, and he saw how we treat people uh, who, who kill 20, 30 people. There were 31 people wounded, and in his mind, those 31 people, he intended to kill them all. Well, I suppose the, the bright spot, if there's even going to be one, is that he's talking. He's talking to investigators, and hopefully he is just vomiting up all sorts of psychology that will help us to find the next before they can do this. Dr. Wellner, it's always good to have you. Thank you so much for your insight tonight. Appreciate it. That doctor is the first person that I've seen make a lot of sense in regards to the study and the mitigation of these type of active shooters. What we're seeing of late of these active shooters, 18 to 21 to 22 years old, loners, uh, pretty much people that don't have a lot of friends. I'm sure if we took a deep dive into their background and to their psychology, we would find a lot more things that they had in common with each other. However, we need a lot more study into this. And of course, the doctor, good doctor said, we can solve this. I think that has to be something that's on the front burner, not the back burner. We have to solve this. This is an American problem. It's just not a Second Amendment problem, although that's part of it. Uh, buying these high-powered weapons, we have to take a, a look at that. I mean, just think he fired 70 shots. And if you listen to the tape, it sounded like, Automatic gunfire, it was just uh, 
totally horrendous. Uh, Clotus McCune, we never knew how social media was going to change our culture. I agree. I think the jury's still out. I think social media is quite damaging. Um, there's good things about it, but there's horrendous things about it. And I think the people that are in charge of it really just care about the, their bank account. I don't think they care about the effect it has on society. I don't think they care about the mental health effect it has on people. I think they're so intrusive in their uh, attempts to make money that they throw out everyone's life right out and it's for sale. And I think all of those things are a detriment to our society. It really is. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Story, and I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired NYPD sergeant. I just wanted to give a quick update on this. This case and these cases are huge tragedies, an American problem, um, something that we know is going to happen again. We just know. It's just, it's till we find a solution, till we find a way to stop this, it's going to happen over and over again. Folks, if you're not uh, subscribed to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button. It's free to subscribe. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon. We also have a YouTube membership if you want to become a member of our YouTube family. So, folks, again, this is another sad situation, active shooters. I'm going to stay on top of this the next few days and weeks. I'm on tonight at 9 p.m. with Mike Riley, and we're going to talk about the Supreme Court's decision in regards to open carry, open carry gun laws that caused quite a stir, especially in New York State. He's a state assemblyman from uh, Staten Island. He's going to be on the show tonight at 9 p.m. And we're going to take a a little bit of a dive into this. We're going to talk about the ramifications of uh, open carry and the response from um, Governor Hochul and other politicians, Mayor Adams. They were not very happy. Folks, I want you to have a great day. This is Bill Cannon, Police Officer Cuff, Real Crime Stories. God bless. And stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.